everyone and welcome back to Endopod. My name is Vivian, I'm a third year medical student at the University of Aberdeen and I'm going to introduce you to our new mystery case series. This series is going to involve discussions on specific case studies with the conditions only being revealed as we work through the case. The patient in today's case is Stephanie, a 43 year old woman who has presented with increased thirst and increased urination. She has been experiencing these symptoms for the past few months and has presented now at the GP surgery because she has been having to wake up several times at night to pee and it has really been disturbing her sleep. She has also noticed that she's peeing much greater volumes than before and this has really started to concern her. When asked about her previous medical history, Stephanie tells you that she has had a previous surgery to remove her appendix 15 years ago on the cesarean section at the birth of her second child 10 years ago. So at first I would like for you to think a little bit about what differential diagnoses you would come up with for someone presenting with polyuria, also called excess urination, and polydipsia, or excessive thirst. Now that you've had some time to think of the possible diagnosis, let's go through the potential options. The potential deferential diagnosis for increased thirst and excessive urination could be due to diabetes mellitus, where the kidneys are forced to work overtime excreting excess glucose in the bloodstream into the urine. This glucose then pulls further fluid along with it due to its osmotic pressures. This is also called osmotic diuresis. This causes dehydration and thus thirst, as well as greater amounts of urine output. It could also make you think of hypercalcemia, where increased calcium levels can interfere with sodium absorption and can also inhibit the actions of antidiuretic hormone ADH, also called vasopressin. It also osmotically increases urine volumes with more calcium and sodium being excreted in it, similarly to glucose. So moving on, diabetes insipidus is also a very possible diagnosis. It is a rare disorder where the majority of symptoms are the patients producing large amounts of dilute urine and experiencing increased thirst. This is either due to a deficiency in the production of ADH, which could be due to damage to the pituitary gland, or it could have nephrogenic causes where there is a resistance in the kidneys to ADH. Now that we've explored the possible conditions which could be causing Stephanie's symptoms, I want you to take a minute to think about what investigations you could do to exclude the specific differentials. Let's start from the beginning, shall we? What initial investigations would you do to exclude diabetes mellitus? The first line investigation for diabetes mellitus would be to do a fasting blood sugar test, a random glucose test, and then you would go on further and do an HbA1c test. Doing the two initial tests, the random glucose and fasting blood sugar, can give a quick indication of whether hyperglycemia is present, and the HbA1c test could help tell if it's prediabetes or diabetes we are dealing with. Stephanie's fasting blood sugar was 4.2 millimoles per liter, and her random blood glucose was 6.2 millimoles per liter. Have a, have a second to think about what these values mean. So because Stephanie's values were normal for both, you wouldn't go on to do any further investigations in this case. Moving on, let's explore how we can exclude hypercalcemia. First of all, 
What would be the, the first line investigation to exclude hypercalcemia? You could just do a routine blood test and check calcium and sodium levels. The normal calcium range is around 2.2 to 2.6 millimoles per liter. These values were also normal for Stephanie. Moving on to diabetes insipidus, have a think about what investigations you could do to achieve a diagnosis. So the first line investigation for diabetes insipidus is a water deprivation test. To undertake this test, Stephanie has to fast and have no fluids for an eight hour period and her urine volume and osmolality is monitored continuously throughout. Urine osmolality is basically a measure of the number of dissolved particles per water unit in the urine. Normal urine osmolality has a wide range, but with an eight hour fluid restriction, it should be more than 600 millimosmoles. If it is more dilute than that, it could be indicative of kidney damage or diabetes insipidus. So after the eight hour period, if Stephanie's urine osmolality is less than 600 milliosmoles per kilogram, she will be given a synthetic ADH called desmoprestin. If her urine osmolality were above 600 milliosmoles per kilogram, she would have passed the test and the cause of her symptoms would likely be psychogenic. Stephanie's urine osmolality was 215 milliosmoles per kilogram, however, so she was continuously monitored after being given desmopressin. Her post-test urine osmolality after being given desmopressin was 592 milliosmoles per kilogram. I want you to have a think of what this would mean. So because Stephanie's urine osmolality went back to normal after administering synthetic ADH, her diagnosis is central diabetes insipidus where there is a problem with the production of the hormone. Before we go into the pathophysiology and the types of diabetes insipidus, it's important that we have a look at the culprit hormone, antidiuretic hormone, or also called vasopressin. This is a peptide hormone synthesized in the narrow secretory cells of the hypothalamus and released by the posterior pituitary. It is released when plasma osmolality is increased or extracellular fluid volume is decreased. ADH then acts on the collecting ducts of the nephrons in the kidneys to increase its permeability to water and this increases water reabsorption by the kidneys. As mentioned earlier, diabetes insipidus has two types, central or also called cranial diabetes insipidus and nephrogenic DI. First, let's look at cranial DI. This is the most common type of diabetes insipidus and happens when there is a decreased production of antidiuretic hormone. It can be idiopathic or can be caused by damage to the pituitary gland or the hypothalamus due to tumors of either of these structures, or it can be due to head trauma, granulatomous disease, and infections such as meningitis and encephalitis. It can also have iatrogenic causes and develop after cranial surgery. In nephrogenic DI, there is a resistance in the kidneys to the actions of antidiuretic hormone, resulting in very dilute urine. It can be due to chronic renal failure, hypercalcemia, hypokalemia, tubointestinal disease, or can be caused by lithium toxicity. The management of DI depends on the cause. The first line for cranial DI is desmopressin, a synthetic form of ADH. 
It can be given orally, intranasally, and by subcutaneous injection. In nephrogenic DI, the underlying cause must be addressed, and treatment most commonly consists of a combination of diazide diuretics and NSAIDs. In Stephanie's case, as she was found to have cranial diabetes insipidus, she was referred for an MRI scan to check for any abnormalities in her pituitary gland or in her hypothalamus. The results of the MRI showed a small mass in her pituitary. She was therefore prescribed oral desbopressin and will be kept under observation to ensure the size of the mass does not increase. So overall, cranial diabetes insipidus can present with symptoms like Stephanie's, such as polyuria and polydipsia, and it usually responds well to desmopressin. But the prognosis of the individuals depends on the underlying pathology in the pituitary or the hypothalamus, so it is definitely very important to always further investigate the underlying causes. Thank you so much for listening to today's Mystery Case podcast. We'll be back again soon with a new case.